Hey friends, yesterday I was having a conversation with somebody who is really excited to get going with the GMC project in some ways, and I was saying, hey, we're not entirely clear on who we are yet. Um, the Global Methodist Church is a new organization. We aren't even having our convening conference until next year when a lot of our transitional book of doctrines and discipline is going to be adjusted and augmented to fit who we are and who we're trying to be. And in the meantime, yes, the movement is growing, but what's it growing toward? What What is uniting us all together? And And there are a lot of good conversations happening right now. I'd like to think that I'm facilitating some of them. Uh, some of this conversation needs to be around doctrinal distinctives, and I know a lot of people's eyes glaze over whenever you talk about doctrine, but doctrine is the fundamental beliefs that unite us all together. The reason that we left the United Methodist Church was because they were not upholding their doctrine uh, or their their discipline in, in their body, and we need to do better in the GMC, but that means that we need to know what our doctrine is and that we need to stand beside it and be very firm about uh, several things. So uh, uh, over a month ago now, I sat down with Matt Sickle, and uh, he had submitted a list of doctrinal distinctives that are non-negotiable for the GMC, and we made it through about half of them in an hour. So we knew that we needed to follow up and do this. Um, at this point, uh, I forget how many people have watched this first conversation. The second one is going to pick up uh, on on something that I'm very passionate about. But um, if you haven't met Matt Sickle before, very intelligent guy. He's a deacon in the GMC, ordained. He, uh, I just learned before we turned the cameras on that he is fluent in French, and uh, he, is, he is rightly uh, part of many conversations around the world with faithful Wesleyans seeking true holiness uh, to spread scriptural holiness across the land. So uh, Matt and I have, have known who each other are for probably about a year now. I don't know. And um, I, I, I love knowing who the people are, the thought leaders that really um, can back up what they say and, and have reasoning behind what they say. Matt is definitely one of them. So if you don't know who he is, that's okay. The Methodist world is a big world. But you're going to know who he is by the close of this. You should go back and watch the first one where uh, we covered uh, a lot of different topics. Uh, today we're going to cover five, and I think we'll be able to do that within an hour. So uh, I've talked enough already. Mr. Sickle, how are you this morning? Good morning, Jeff. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, I'm dragging. You know, we're talking at 6.30 a.m. my time, but, you know, it's worth it to, to cover these things. Um, did, what I haven't asked you this yet. Did you get any kind of pushback or response from the, the first conversation that we had? I, I had a lot of conversations with people the first go around. Uh, I, it, there was not a lot of pushback. Um, there's the, the normal uh, question and answer that comes with it. Um, I was really pleased to see how many people engaged with with the conversation before. Um, I think this stuff's important, and uh, people seem to also. So yeah, it just I think if anything, it really helps us each to sharpen what we think and and how we think. Um, if we're not thinking, uh, then our minds aren't being renewed, and that's part of Romans twelve. So. Did you so with the people that came to you with questions and talking about it? Was there any kind of theme in that? Was there any new insight in that, or did you find yourself kind of in a just kind of in a pedantic position, going, "No, no, yeah, these really are important, and we really need to be thinking about this stuff." And people going, "Hmm, I'm thinking about it now." Yeah, I think that was a lot of it. Um, I think you know there was there, there was especially on the question of women. Um, 
and if you remember from our last conversation, there was all of that, well, I can't believe we're having this conversation. Um, and so I had a lot more of, I can't believe we're having this conversation from a lot of people. Um, but I, I think it helps people to recognize, you know, a lot of people haven't even thought about these questions. Uh, and, you know, and, and if you're not, uh, if you're not a theologian, or you're not a, a church nerd or something like that, you're not thinking about these questions. And they don't, you don't realize, you know, what's layered in this stuff until you start sort of trying to peel it away and you go, well, what do I really believe? Mm -hmm. What's really important to me? And I think it's helpful for everybody. Yeah, well, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't think it was helpful for everybody. That really is a pretty explicit goal uh, for me and for you. You know, you're regularly... We're, we're social media buddies. I see you posting things to, to build up the church, and hopefully that's the impression people get of me. Um, let's talk about the specifics. Uh, I, I just want to briefly uh, cover the ground that we already covered, uh, and I'm going to try and remember to overlay the text here for viewers this time. But the ground we already covered is Methodists are not independent but connectional. Methodists have two sacraments, and they are not ordinances. Methodists baptize babies and believers rather than just believers. Methodists do not hold to eternal security. Methodists believe in freed will. Methodists believe in Christ's triumphant return, but not a rapture. Methodists ordain and empower women. So that's seven of the 12 right there. We just ended uh, last time with women, I, uh, for my part, explained why it is that um, at this point in Methodist history, we need to recapitulate the arguments that have been made um, in the last hundred years since women have been welcomed into the pulpit and into an equal role of ministry with men, and that if we can't find the patience to do that, then, well, and I would say that with all 12 of these, if we can't find the patience to articulate why we believe what we believe and that our posture is instead just irritation with those who ask questions, then we're rightfully going to deserve um, a lot of disintegration at this point. You, you really, and I don't think anyone should believe anything that they can't articulate why they believe it. It doesn't have to be an academic explanation, but if the, if the reason is, I believe it because it's what I've always believed, that's really not a sufficient ground on which to stand, um, and that's, that's not really a, a good ground, especially to do evangelism and welcome people. You're just welcome pe welcoming people into your own subjective uh, way of being in the world, and that's not what the church is. The church is an appeal to an objective identity, namely that of Christ. And so when that's the, the project that we're a part of, then we need to make sure that our doctrines are in alignment with the mind of Christ. So do you agree with that groundwork that I've laid out before we get back into the particulars? Absolutely. And, and, and I just want to emphasize how important it is. I mean, you know, Romans 12, 2 is, like I said before, it's the renewing of our mind. And mm -hmm. so it's, it, and, and the Greek there is imperative, be being transformed. So if we're not consistently working for transformation in the way that we think, and then the way we act, mm -hmm. we're not carrying out the, you know, the imperative command that, that's given there. Very good. Okay. Well, we'll get into the very next one, which I already said, I, I, when everybody who listens to me should know, I'm very passionate about Methodist value small group ministry bands and class meetings. Go ahead and uh, present this one. If for someone who really is just not familiar with this, uh, uh, Matt, tell them why this is so important. 
But and and, and honestly, it's interesting because I'm going to be facilitating a conversation at my own church this evening on this subject um, with the church council, mm-hmm. who have many of them not even perhaps uh, experienced what these things mean mm-hmm. um, and why they're important. Um, my wife is in a band. Um, she's been after me for years about being in a band myself, and I just haven't laid the things together for it yet. Um, but I've spent probably the last 20 some years in small group ministry. Um, and that's more than Bible study. And I think that's, and it's more than Sunday school. And I think that's the key here in all of this. Um, and, and the power of, of Wesleyan Christianity, you know, when Methodists were growing by leaps and bounds, this kind of accountable discipleship group um, was uh, incredibly in, I mean, it was a huge part of everything that was happening in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to be in your in your class meeting, or you were going to be dismissed from the membership of the church. So, you know, when Wesley initially conceived what Methodism was, it was small class meetings, societies of like-minded believers who met together for accountability and building each other up in their walks with Christ. They weren't informational sessions like Sunday school where we go to Sunday school and we learn Bible stories or we, you know, we do a, a book together or whatever. They were serious uh, levels of discipleship um, where you walked in and you bared your soul to the person sitting next to you. And that person bared his or her soul to, to you. And so, you know, I, and, and we were talking, my, my lead pastor and I were talking, um, and, he, and he said, how do we get people committed to the cause of Christ? And I said, they have to be wrecked before God. That's the only way you're going to get committed. You have to completely and utterly debase yourself before God so that God can then refill you. And, and that doesn't happen if I'm going to Sunday school and, and I'm having a nice conversation over coffee and reading the latest book uh, out in, in Christian book distributors. No. Or from Seabed. No. It's about me opening myself up to the corrective and changing action of the Holy Spirit. And that only happens when I'm willing to take my guard down and say, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's why I'm not feeling like I have a walk with Christ. Here's the sin that's active in my life that I can't seem to get out of my life. Um, can you please pray for me and pray with me as we do this together? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the power that's in a small group ministry band or a class meeting that's more than informational. We need things that are transformational. And the only way to do that is to allow each other to hold each other accountable. I remember when the WCA was advocating for this new denomination that would eventually be formed, and for a time the rhetoric was very strong around class meetings at least being mandatory for all uh, the Methodists of this future future denomination. The mandatory language isn't there anymore, and even in your language, it's that we value these things. It's not that we compel people into these things. So is to your mind, is it possible to be a Methodist while not participating in a small group or band? Uh, I, I think I think so. Um, but I don't think you're going to last. 
I don't think it's going to, I mean, um, if you're looking for the kind of transformational ministry that that Methodism is about, you're not going to get it if you're not there. Um, and, you know, Wesley was very compulsory with his push. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to be there. Yeah. You had to be there. And I was in that debate um, at that WCA legislative gathering where we discussed this in the very beginning. And there was a lot of pushback on the floor, on the legislative floor, about the mandatory language that you just that you just mentioned, um, and there was give and take there because you're dealing with, you know, folks who've probably been Methodists for 75 years in their whole lives have never heard any of this mm-hmm. because it was not taught. It was only almost rediscovered in, in some way by accident, I think, um, because of good work by people like Kevin Watson who started pushing on this and picking at this. Um, I, that's like saying, can I be a Christian and, and only go to church every Sunday? Yeah, you can. But, you know, the level of discipleship, the level of an intimacy with Christ mm-hmm. is not going to be there. Uh, I know from my own self that if I'm not actively involved in the small group that I'm in, where, and it's more than Bible study, it's, it's sharing of, of, pain and hope and dream. It's doing life together. That's the phrase that we like to use. Yeah. Um, if I'm not in that, I, I am so much more inclined to neglect the important things in my Christian walk because I don't have people consistently talking to me about my walk, consistently asking me about my walk, mm-hmm. consistently pressing me because I'm watching them. They're doing much better in their walk. It gives me encouragement to move forward. Uh, I mean, no, not everybody has to be as as sort of OCD about it as Wesley was. I mean, the man would keep track in his journal every day about how many religious conversations he had with people, what religious books he read, uh, what time in prayer he spent. You know, maybe that's sort of over the top for a lot of folks, but there's value in that. And that's why I, want, I use the word value, mm-hmm. because if we're and we're not if we're not approaching it as something that we treasure almost as as a as something that uh, we lift up and say this is a treasure we want to share it with you um i don't want church because there's a there's a tendency in in that mandatory push to say you know for people to be turned off mm-hmm. and maybe some people think well that's okay you know maybe they you know, maybe, but I, i'm not about that it's just not the way I understand the best way to reach people. So, you know, some people want mandatory. I want to say value. Uh, I don't really care. Um, but the point is get people in the door and get them connected with small group ministry classes and bands because you cannot have a relationship with God at any level until you've opened yourself and I think really the only way to open ourselves is to learn how to be vulnerable with somebody else in front of us. Because if we can learn how to be vulnerable with somebody else in front of us, we cannot lie to ourselves anymore about how close we are with God. So I'm um, I'm in a different place from you in that I think one can be, and I'm, I'm persuadable on this, so I'm not laying laying it down, here's how it is. I'm persuadable, but I, I think there are many distinctives that you've said are compulsory and non-negotiable that I actually don't think are essential to be a Methodist. But I would say that the class meeting 
is actually part and parcel with being a Methodist and that if you're not actively involved in a class meeting, you are not authentically a Methodist. And I say that because not just during John Wesley's day, but past Francis Asbury's day, there was no notion of a Methodist that was not regularly participating in a class meeting. And it wasn't some kind of um, detail-oriented, anal-retentive sort of thing. It was a very broad and basic thing of watching over one another in love and being mutually accountable. And uh, when the Sunday school movement came along and Methodism became too comfortable, and we imagined that we could be Christians and Methodists without the class meeting, that happens to coincide pretty neatly with uh, the anime and decline of the Methodist movement. So I'm in a place where um, I actually want to set my foot down and say, okay, maybe we can make some kind of distinction between people are in a Methodist church and worshiping as part of a Methodist community, but they are actually not authentically Methodist unless they are participating in a a class or a band where they are practicing mutual accountability rather than looking at a curriculum. Uh, What what sounds right? Well, we've already talked about what's right in that. I think it's all right. I don't think, I don't think the issue is that I think it's, 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 this is really a practical issue more than anything. Um, and I think it's it's impractical at some level to get some, you know, 80-year-old person or 60-year-old person mm-hmm. who spent their whole life in, in the United Methodist Church to then all of a sudden turn around and go, oh, I've been doing this wrong for all of these years. I, you know, my, my salvation's not to you. Know, so you see what I'm saying? It's, it's well, not, but the, it, it's not what you're asking, but impractical. But you're asking them to do that with any number of other doctrinal issues that you have set your feet down on and said, no, Methodists believe this. Well, if they've had 70 years in a denomination already and they haven't believed it, you know, uh, whether this about sacraments or uh, baptizing babies or free will, you know, just because someone has had 75, 80 years believing one way and they've called themselves a Methodist does not make them a Methodist, you know. Uh, sticking feathers up your butt does not make you a chicken, right? And so... No, I agree. And it, so there it, are some it, it, things it, it, that you're willing to set your foot down and say, nope, if you're going to call yourself a Methodist now, you have to believe this. But... Small groups isn't one of them because, well, okay, is it because it enters the realm of this is a weekly regular demand on your life that Im- involves your body, whereas these other things are just mind things that you have yep. to assent I to. I can think this stuff and make my decision about this stuff, but, you know, you really, it's, I think we need to be in a place that you described where it is a part and parcel of what being a Methodist is. I think that's where we have to be headed. I don't think... I, I think unless we are, you, you know, what's that word that they used with the Supreme Court uh, for, for Brown versus Board with all due speed? And then they found out that the South wasn't operating with all due speed with regard to desegregation. I think I think we need to find language that says with all due speed, we are headed to the place where every Methodist is a member of a class meeting or a band meeting or both or whatever. Um, but, it, you know, you have to make that trip. So if I walked into my congregation on Sunday and said, uh, you are only going to lose your membership in a year if you don't join a class meeting, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that's going to go over well. And I don't think we're going to get where we want to go. On the flip side, we cannot stay this way um, because th- that's not what this movement is about. That's not how you pursue holiness. Mm-hmm. And that's the message that I'm actually going to give to the church council at my congregation is unless unless you are 
with all due speed, getting the congregation from this point to that point, we won't make this jump. And, and I said to you know, I said to my lead pastor, I said, how do you get the main line out of the main line? Mm-hmm. That's the real question that right. we have to ask ourselves. Because, you know, of all of these things that, that are on this list, and I think you hit on something when you said um, these things are about thought versus action yeah. demands on my physical body. Um, in this case, this is a huge ask of people for a paradigm shift, but there will be no transformational discipleship without it. Uh And, and, and of all these things also, I think this is the most unmainline of all of them on the list yeah, because for, for listeners mainline is uh, a class distinction the mainline denominations uh, that came out of i forget what city where the rich folks lived mm-hmm. on the main line mainline denominationalism so became associated so, with upper middle class sensibilities based on comfort and milk toast only going skin deep how do we get past mm-hmm. that cultural norm of not letting our faith really get very deep and instead, you know, redressing that and, and saying, no, it's actually designed to go deep. You're not doing it at all if you're not going deep. And so, yeah, th- that's the question that, that you're directing us around. How do we, how do we uh, unlearn what we have learned, as Yoda said? Um, and Yes, how do you get rid of that in, in the world of a church that only understands church this way? Right. If you've yeah. only ever understood church this way. And, and I think, um, you, you know, obviously there are uh, churches that don't do this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but, but this is what is, I mean, you want to, you want to flip somebody's lid. And I think Kevin Watson's chapter in the next Methodism does it very well. He pairs the general rules with, class and band meetings. Why? Because you're supposed to be in class and band meetings dealing with the general rules. Have I lived up to these rules this week? Where did I fail? Where can I do better? Where is God working in my heart? And I'm going to lay the general rules out to our folks. And many people don't even know what they are. Never heard of them. Don't know they exist. And when you read them, they're a whole lot more than what Bishop Job wrote, do no harm, do good and stay in love with God. Yeah. That's not what they are no, at that's all. Not, well, even the stay in love with God is not... Isn't that's, right. That's a bastardization. Exactly. That's not even a reflection of attend upon the ordinances. And the fact that the, the it's so disconcerting that, that the UMC swallowed that hook, line, and sinker and is not even aware of all the specific things that it enumerates under each one that are really non-negotiable. I did a four-part series for my church. I, I'm going to... if. I'm going to send it to you. If it's not useful, then don't use it. But I, I just sat down and went through each one and, and didn't preach on it exactly. But a lot of folks, their eyes glaze over once they get a few in. But I, I walked through the whole thing. You really have to. Um, it, it's a really useful tool. But the the thing is, you know, a lot of people listen to this and go, I'm, I'm a Christian just fine, and I'm not a part of any group like this. But, um, it, you know, the, the two historical things to point to that I, I've, I find insightful is uh, Martin Luther, at the close of his life, reflected on his um, revolution in the church, and you know the the Lutheran movement had been around for a time at that point, and he acknowledged that his followers were not any holier than followers of the Roman Catholic tradition. Yep. Meanwhile, uh, a couple hundred years later, with um, uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield, 
Whitfield was a much better preacher and evangelist. He could set people on fire with the Holy Spirit, speaking through him much more reliably than John Wesley, but he reflected at the end of his career that the disciples he had made were but a rope of sand compared to John Wesley's because John Wesley would immediately put them in classes and bands, and that's what held their faith together and actually uh, moved them along in in holiness. And the success of Methodism... Oh, I was going to say, I think it's important to make a distinction there, too. It's not just the class meeting Mm -hmm. that does the work, Uh, you know, and you need that Holy Spirit that Whitfield was able to to inspire. But it's about opening your heart. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key, because we can all go in a class meeting. We sit around and look. Yeah, we check this box today. We check this box today. We check this box today. We check this box. It's not about box checking either. And I, I think that's the the part that really needs to be emphasized. When I go to a class meeting, I have to admit the fact that I am a sinner uh-huh. who really loses everything every day because of how poorly I'm able to measure up to the standard that is set. I want to. I have a desire to. I mean, what does Wesley say? You know, come if you have a desire to flee from the wrath to come. Yeah, that well, was the only thing the required to be a Methodist. Yeah. Well, to enter exactly. into the Methodist society, you had to confess on the front yes. end that you believed in a coming wrath and that it was going to get you unless something changed. Unless something changed in your life. And and if you, and that's why I said when we started this, this conversation out about this, this has to be transformational. Yeah. It's not informational. It's transformational. Yeah. And, and the Holy Spirit is, is, is what does that. God has to come in and work a, a miraculous work in your heart. And the only way to deal with that is to get wrecked before God. And the only way to get wrecked before God is to start pouring out all the garbage that lives in your heart. And, and Well, this, this is something that, that I— somebody else. The other reason that I think that this is core and key for Methodism and not it, it should not be optional is because uh, Christ made his appeal through the Methodists originally, not through any kind of marketing campaign but through the transformed mm-hmm. lives of Methodists. But Methodists' lives mm-hmm. were only transformed because they were in these these crucibles of transformation. So if we make the crucible optional, then essentially what you guarantee is that you're going to have people calling themselves Methodists, churches calling themselves Methodists that are not transformed but are instead just reflecting the culture. They just didn't go as far crazy as the UMC. And so the, the concern on my end is that... Uh, I, I hear you saying we've got to have an, uh, an emphasis on on all due speed moving in this direction. But if at any point you allow for people to claim a title without the distinctives, then I think that that you impact the future status quo. So, and I, and I don't imagine that you would vehemently argue. I, I think you would just say, "Look, there is a way to there is a way to facilitate institutional group change that doesn't insist on everything." firmly right up front. We, we can, um, what, what's the metaphor? You can, you can, uh, the way to boil a frog is to put it in, put the, put it in while the water's cold and then heat it up. The, the whether or not that metaphor applies here, we're going to find out because we're not going to make classes mandatory on the front end. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't know what, like I said, it's a practical question. Yeah. We're not, there's no difference between you and me on why it must be part of the Methodist movement. Yeah. The question is, how do we do it? And how do we do it in a way that, that doesn't destroy people? Because the worst thing I want to do is destroy somebody in the process of insisting on something. Yeah. There's, um, so something that the reformed tradition has that the Wesleyan doesn't is whenever someone gets destroyed, they say, 
well, they were never here to begin with. You know, we just exposed that they were not elect. Uh, whereas for Wesleyans, we, oh, I can't do anything that would maybe chase somebody away. And um, it's hard to walk that line. So both, both extremes it, get it a bit ridiculous. Important. Um, let's let's move on a little bit, but uh, for listeners, you know, just me, you know, this is my show. Uh, this is the number one thing I would push you on. Um, and so, if you don't have any idea what we're talking about, he's already referenced Kevin Watson. Before Kevin Watson, there was David Lowe's Watson. J.D. Walt has a book out. This is something that a number of people have talked about. So, do your research, look into it. Um, okay, the next one is Methodists call Scripture authoritative and infallible, but not inerrant. Immediately, a lot of people's eyes glaze over um, the 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 ethos that a lot of people have that left the UMC is um, the Bible says it, it means what it says. I believe it. That's that's as complicated as it needs to be. Uh, unfortunately, whenever you dig into biblical hermeneutics, it is far from clear how to actually uh, implement that and have everybody agree on how that's implemented. So there's, there's two words that are very similar, and depending on who you're talking to, they sound exactly the same, infallible and inerrant. And you're saying that the right scriptural interpretation is infallible, but it is not inerrant. Err means to make a mistake. Uh, so I, I'm assuming what you mean there is we can acknowledge that there are some mistakes in the biblical witness that are not historically or mathematically or scientifically accurate. They do not call into question the uh, infallibility of the scriptural witness. It, it is a perfect reflection of God's spirit and will and role in the world. Would you, would you, dis, how, how did I do? Did I read your mind correctly? I, I think that's it. I think, you know, I, you can spend a lot of time talking to David Watson about this and he can become rather passionate about this topic because he's written a lot about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, Billy Abraham before him. Um, but I think that's reasonable. You know, I really like how the EUB Confession of Faith puts what we do with scripture. Um, and it says, we believe the Holy Bible Old and New Testaments reveals the word of God so far as it is necessary for our salvation. It is to be received through the Holy Spirit as a true rule and guide for faith and practice. Whatever is not received, revealed or established by the Holy Scriptures is not to be made an article of faith, nor is it to be taught essential to salvation. Uh, to me, that's the Methodist position. I, I don't want to sit here and, and pick hairs about inerrancy and infallibility be, well, and, and and the one thing that sort of grinds me on it is that's not what the text is for. I mean, that, you know, if, if you want to spend some time fooling around with the Bible, the Bible has a purpose, uh-huh. and its purpose is the salvation of humanity. That's why the church put the thing together to begin with. It's to help you learn about who God is, who you are, and how the to come together. Uh-huh. We, we spend more time and energy arguing about, you know, whether or not there's 27 angels on the head of a pin or 37 angels on the head of a pin. But the Bible is not, it's not a science book. Uh, it's For not the sake of that I can... listeners, they're not going to go with you there. That was uh, a somewhat uh, obscure reference <laughs> to St. Thomas Aquinas of the Roman Catholic persuasion who entertained that as a serious conversation of how many 
how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And of course, that's not exactly. actually a topic that Methodists are, are generally interested in whenever it comes to biblical hermeneutics. But the thing I'm taking from what you're saying is that within many Methodist circles that have um, an unhelpful view of scriptural interpretation, they get real bent out of shape on things that miss the point. They miss the forest for the trees. Exactly. You got that exactly right, Jeff. I mean, the Bible is for our salvation. That's what its purpose is. Mm -hmm. It's And so that's what we should use it for. And that's what we should insist upon it for. And salvation is more than just uh, me going to heaven when I die, of course. You know, there's sure. and, and it's faith and practice. How do I live and what do I believe mm -hmm. about my 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 own humanity and my relationship with God? Mm -hmm. uh, anything beyond that. And you're really stretching the purpose for what the Bible exists for. Um, and, and I think that's really where the conversation needs to be had. Well, so uh, we're if not. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. If not, if we don't have the conversation. Then well, what? If, if not, then, then I think we, we, we wasted energy. I mean, it, I, I don't want to sit here and argue about how many days that it, that it took, God to make the world. Mm -hmm. It's not, that's got nothing to do with my relationship with God, my salvation, my, you know, it's got nothing to do with anything, but sitting here and having a conversation about what it means that God spends a million years or seven days making the world. That's not what the story is telling you. That's not what it's for. And yet we spend hours and hours trying to defend it because we think it matters. Well, it, and, so the reason that, that, I mean, maybe maybe you've got a position that that is tenable but the reason for a lot of people like me that it matters is because the whole reason that we left the UMC the reason that the UMC became uh in some senses an apostate church is because of its um biblical hermeneutics uh the the way that it failed to implement the the veracity of the scriptures in in not just individual lives but in the institutional life of the church and so at the heart of the season that we're in is the subject of biblical interpretation. Um, but then the question is, mm -hmm. how do we do that rightly? And to your mind, we can, in some sense, you're, this is not, uh, here's, here's a critical um, way of looking at what you're proposing um, that you, you can disagree with. But it seems to me that when people say, that's not what the book is for, that in some sense, I, the subject, am elevating myself above the text by saying, this is what it's for, this is what I can use it for. Whereas a proper relationship of, with Scripture is, well, the book tells me what it's for. I don't get to say what it's for. I don't get to decide what lens to read it through so that I can sift out the parts that apply and parts that don't. That's what killed the UMC. They decided what parts applied and what parts no longer did. As soon yeah, and the book tells you that. That's what I would tell you. The book does tell you that. Not only that, the church tells you that. And 2,000 years of church history tell you that. And, and, and I think that's, that's the important distinction here. I'm not setting myself above, above the scripture by saying that's not what it's for. That's not my opinion. Um, that's what the book tells you. And that's what the church has told us. I mean, you know, I just read you the statement out of the confession of faith that tells you what the book is for. Mm -hmm. uh, and and Wesley would tell you what the book is for, and the church fathers would tell you what the book is for. So mm -hmm. I think part of the problem, you know, now we're back again to the question of, of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. 
um, and and how you approach scripture and what do you do with it. The, one of and and I would tell everybody who who wants to to think about scripture from this perspective, go read um, Cheryl Bridges John's new book, um, Reenchanting the Text. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a phenomenal book that talks about how God uses the Bible to speak to us in a living and active way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason she's pressing against this is because she sees too many people simply holding up the book and saying, this is nothing, this is no different than my chemistry textbook or uh, my, my mathematics textbook. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't use a mathematics textbook to have a transformed life. That's not what a mathematics textbook mm-hmm. is for. And, it, and, and a mathematics textbook is teaching you propositional truths about how mathematics works. Mm-hmm. The Bible might have a bunch of propositional truths in it, mm-hmm. but its primary purpose isn't to teach you the science of God in the sense that you'd learn the science of mathematics. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's an encounter with a reality that's totally transcendent from you. That's so, what the Bible is, and that's the point of her book. Yeah, the critique, the critique that I hear you and many others raising is— we in our 21st century minds try and conform faith, religion, relationship with God to a worldview that is really very new and doesn't have overlap with the ancient context in which it was given. So we have to learn to take ourselves away from enslavement to this context and learn more about the the context in which it originally applied so as to universally uh, apply it rightly. The problem is, you know, of course, it's really difficult to do that. But one of these <laughs> distinction, one of these things about the modern mind is separating things that were not separate in the early uh, church, ancient world. One of those things being science and religion, or mathematics Correct. and religion. These things, you know, once upon a time, theology was considered the queen of the sciences. So whenever we lo- lift up, here's a science textbook, and here's the Bible, and these answer different questions. To an ancient person, that would not make any sense because they didn't divide between these frames of knowing. Um, And so, whereas you would look at the modernist fundamentalist thing and say, oh, that's so constrained by the modern worldview, well, people like me would come back and say, well, when you're dividing science and spiritual truths, that also is a byproduct of a very modern way of looking at things. Ancients, when they did biblical interpretation, didn't separate these things. And you did find things in the ancient early church that very much resemble fundamentalism. Um, And then you also find things where they were more loosey-goosey with the text than a lot of fundamentalists would like. And so I think there's a caricature of fundamentalist biblical interpretation that's very, um, I think David Watson would say they are intellectually irresponsible with the text. The the text volunteers a lot more than what they let it say. But but what what you find in... in, um, um, fundamentalist circles is, as long as they establish that everyone thinks that the Bible is actually, the, they, they agree on what it is, then they can be much more loose in their interpretation of, of what things say, as long as they know they're in good company. But the, the problem... I would agree with that, yeah. and I, I would totally agree with that, because of my own experience working uh, across right. denominational lines. Yeah, this is something that, I mean, everybody knows that, you know, fundamentalists will take a hard line on biblical interpretation, but then as they preach on the Bible, they will come to, you know, different nuanced positions on what different biblical texts say. And that's okay, because they have established what the Word of God is, and the, a serious, the same serious approach to it. 
the the thing that you know I don't I I don't know if you saw it I I interviewed David Watson and he makes the case for we should allow for different hermeneutics to be applied to the Bible. The point is not what hermeneutic you use, it's that you all get to the same place, which is the consensual tradition of the ages or something. But for people like and me— And he's right about that. Well, so I, 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 really, I really disagreed with him because I think that was the fundamental assumption in the United Methodist Church that allowed them to think that, that they could be loosey-goosey with the Bible, but what it results in— at any, at any, you know, whether it's after ten years or a hundred years, is theological drift that feels harmless or even noble, you know. So I don't see, see where the and I see are. the issue with there. The issue with that is, is you're not going to get theological drift if you haven't let go of your doctrinal standards. Well, that's so, well, we held on to our doctrinal standards in the UMC. No, they, no, no, we didn't. On no, paper. We didn't. Yeah, that, but that's not the same thing. That's not what I'm saying. Well, and that's not so, what David is saying either. But to imagine that we can—I I mean, the historical witness of the church is that doctrine doesn't change, but the people in charge do. And so how do you keep people in charge from changing? Uh, well, now you're asking, how do I stop people from sinning? I yeah, mean, yeah. <laughs> given given yeah. that there are certain inexorable trends in the church, then it seems to me that the place to hold the line is not— Here's what we have in writing, and you need to hold up what we have in writing. Once we get there, we're already lost. The the thing that— But you're asking me—you're basically asking me to do that with the Bible, and I'm asking you to do it with the doctrinal standards. It's yes. the same thing. Well, and, no, and, and I don't, so what I would really say—so the, the quote is, politics is downstream of culture. And so what I'm saying is, if we have a cultural norm in the global Methodist church that resembles something much closer to fundamentalism— that that guards against the kind of theological drift. Not 100% certainty, but I think that that is a much more sure approach to, to combating the drift that is, that is um, uh, inbuilt into human uh, society. That's, that's, so in the future, whenever I'm annoying everybody by saying, hey, fundamentalism's not that bad, that's what's behind it, is a concern for that theological drift that I see happening in all these different denominations over history. I want to guard against that. I think class and band meetings guard against that by keeping faith real, the the, the doctrinal standards, but part of it has to be a, a cultural norm of seeing the Bible similarly and discounting certain hermeneutics as just too loose, just dancing with the devil, you know? And that's not a concern that David is as concerned about. doesn't sound like you're as concerned about it as me. Um, no, I'm not. And that's and I, okay. I think it also has to do, well, I think it has to do with the circles we run it. Okay. And, and I think you know, that, and, you know, you, in certain contexts, emphasis of certain things is going to be different. And there's no way to avoid that. It just is. So in some places, perhaps that particular perspective on, on hermeneutics is more important than in others. Okay. Um, in, in the end, I would agree with what David said because um, the text is living and active. And if you're just going to use it as some sort of a dartboard to throw darts at um, and say, well, I hit that one, then I hit that one, and I hit that one, that means I know what I believe and blah, 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 I'm doing the right thing. And, and you haven't had that encounter with God over the text, uh, then the text isn't doing what it should because that's what the text says about itself. It says it's living and active. And it's it's able to pierce and all of that. So, but see, you'd rather do that at the class meeting, and and you're talking about the the Hebrews 
passage, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any yes. sword. Mm -hmm. So and in that so, context, you think it's talking about the scriptural text? Yeah, the text itself. Yeah, okay. the word of God is sharper. Yeah, I do. In okay. um, in the end, the question is, are you walking away transformed and wrecked before God? It's the same question we asked in the class meeting mm -hmm. discussion. Yeah. Um, and if 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 it works better in your context to deal with scripture at that propositional level, as long as you're still being transformed by the Holy Spirit in some other sphere, I don't think it makes a difference. M my concern is when we treat the Bible in a way that is so wooden mm -hmm. and so dead that we don't recognize that, well, see, that it's a sacrament. And I understand those God. words, but like you're talking past people like me when you say that because, you know, it's like St. Paul in 1 Corinthians talking to people who are being too loose with their faith, and he's going, look, if you're doing this and you're doing this and you're doing this, you're not going to be welcome in the kingdom. There is a checklist. If you're doing these things, look at your life. Are you doing these things? You're not going to make it into the kingdom. And you can anticipate someone saying, Paul, your understanding is too wooden. You know, you're, you're really looking at this like it's a checklist and, you know, it's, it's about a life of faith, man. And, you know, for people like me, it's just like, dude, I've heard liberal United Methodists all my life talking about being wrecked before God, being transformed, being disciples. They came to the wrong conclusions. They, they, and that all has to do with how we read the Bible. And so if we yeah, limit— it does, But it also has to do with whether or not they were interested in holding on to the doctrinal standards as they were laid out. And mm -hmm. so we're back to the same thing, Jeff. Well, you the, want yeah. to hold up the Bible, and I'm going to hold up your doctrinal standards, and I'm going to tell you, you're not reading this Bible correctly if you're fooling around with this doctrine. So have you heard, have you heard the fundamentalist—I um, interviewed a—I uh, forget what kind of Baptist he was, independent Baptist, but he said— you know, it seems to me the United Methodists, they worship the book of, they, they, their Bible is the book of discipline. And, and once you get to that place where you're not defending the Bible, but you're defending our interpretation of the Bible or our hermeneutic of, of our doctrinal standards, I can all of a sudden understand how people on the outside go, these people's sure. Bible is the book of discipline. It's not the Bible. Sure. And, and what's interesting about that is if you go back to the history of the church mm -hmm. and you look at the great tradition and that's where Watson would be pushing against you with that great tradition again. Yeah, uh -huh. There's a reason why the Nicene Creed is the creed that, can, that, that speaks the faith to the whole world, regardless of where you are. There's a reason why those councils make a difference. And so, you, you know, this, you're, you're, if you're not holding those things together, mm -hmm. then you're going to end up sort of adrift somewhere. And I'm not telling you to let go of the Bible. What I'm telling you is don't you dare pick up the Bible unless you're also picking up the community of people who have read it for 2,000 years, who understand it, and who have created the faith itself in its systematized form. I hear you. Don't do, don't do either one without the other. I hear you. Um, I hear you. I, I, think, I think this segment right here should be really helpful for people listening in to understand how this conversation has developed in Methodist circles and why it is that there's for so many people they get pushback and they're like, why on earth would someone push against this or for this? And I, I feel like we've done a good job indicating uh, a lot of that. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, Methodists have general superintendents or in parentheses bishops. So would I be right in just hearing uh, Methodism is not congregational. It is Episcopal. 
Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes, you would be right. Our church governance model is and not just self-contained in the local church. It's accountable to people on the outside of the local church right. oversee. There's there's somebody there's somebody above us. It's, it, and and we had this conversation about accountability before. Um, you know, you, you you can't do this without somebody looking down um, on you and saying, you know, how's it going with your soul? It's the same thing with the class meeting we were having the discussion mm -hmm. of. Well, yep. that's the role of the bishop. That's the bishop's job. Um, and, and he, you know, whether you're going to call them gen, and this is why I use the words I did, whether you call them general superintendents or you call them bishops, wh whatever word you want to use, somebody's got to be in charge. Yeah. Now the question is, what does this in charge person, what's, what's their responsibility? Well, we can play games with that. I, you know, I'm not interested in that. Is there someone over the top saying, are you being accountable church to what you said church that you were going to do church and and if you want to look at it from the class meeting model you're and 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 again i'm putting right back to kisker's uh statements about what the connection is if in the class meeting i'm accountable to the class meeting about how i'm doing with my life and my walk with christ who's holding the class leader accountable mm -hmm. well the elder well Who's holding the elder accountable? Well, the presiding elder. Well, who's holding the presiding elder accountable? Well, the general superintendent. And well, who's holding the general superintendent accountable? The general conference. And so, you know, that's why we have these people. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to, if, if Methodism is a connection, you know, if we're talking about it as a connection oh, yeah. of churches yeah, and that all was, that stuff. That was number one. Yeah. Then then you've got to have somebody who runs the show. Yeah. Now, since you're a Bible guy and you like throwing scripture out at first instead of doctrinal standards, I'd say, uh, well, now you have to deal with the fact that Paul talks about bishops. Uh -huh. And, and you know, for, for these congregational folks who come to me and say, well, why do you have bishops? There's nothing, this isn't the right way to be doing it. Well, then you tell me what Paul was talking about. Yeah. Because... Paul, Paul speaks about it in, in Timothy, yeah. talking about, you know, okay, should we, we can argue again, like I said, what do these people do? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's have that discussion. Right. Let's have the discussion about what the role of this person who is the bishop is. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to get out of the fact that it's written right there in the Bible, and you got to deal with this thing called episkopos. Yeah. What does that mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's scriptural precedent for that title. The, the people... I've listened to who don't agree with our conclusions, and I say our seriously. Uh, that I I believe there is a role for bishops uh, or superintendents. Yeah, I was picking. I was picking at you. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, I I think that's good. But um, that what they say is uh, the way that he phrases it there it makes it synonymous with presbyteros. They didn't have uh, a formalized. Uh, nomenclature at that point, and so they were more concerned with function than with title. So, and I don't find it, I, I in the end, it does just feel like a place where you have to kind of lean back on, here's what makes most sense to us organizationally, because we're not going to persuade one another. You know, there's this, this, this particular conversation has been had quite well, and there are people on the yep. other side, not because they're stupid and not because they don't take the Bible seriously, but because they've chosen to see that as a uh, phenomena issue, not a noumena issue. 
uh, maybe I said yeah, that. Yeah, well, there you go. No, yeah, but um, but I but think, if you're going to be a Methodist, according you, to Matt Sickle, you need to be you need to understand that in order for connectionalism to even authentically take place, there need to be connectors outside of the local church that not just connect but hold people to a certain uh, mutually agreed upon standard. Yep, and 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 you can call them what you want. Yeah, whether you don't like the title bishop, that's fine. I don't oh yeah, care. it's the same it's thing. Just, you call it episcopos, call thing. it presbyteros. You know, that's yeah. They make the similar argument. I didn't even see the irony in that. But yeah, the the main thing is having a functionary outside of the local church that that is a connector and accountability holder. That's funny. Yep. All right, let's let's go on to the next one. Methodists believe in a second work of grace and a third and a fourth, and look for Christian perfection in love or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All right, so that uses terminology tons of people don't know. So, uh, yep, it uh, sure does. And I've been doing my translation work. You do your translation work for these laymen. Uh, so if you're talking about you know, you know, how Christ operates in our lives, mm-hmm. uh, the Wesleyan understanding, most, most Methodists I know understand the justifying grace and sanctifying grace and provening grace and all of that stuff. Well, we're on sanctifying grace here, and this idea that I'm walking toward Christian perfection, not being perfect in, in the sense of never making any mistake or never doing anything wrong, but this idea that Wesley laid out that I can love God and my fellow human beings uh, with a perfected love um, in a way that is Christ-honoring every time, all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's our goal. That's really our goal. Well, the only way you get there is by God's grace. And sanctification is that process. And uh, every every saving action that God does in our life is by grace. And so if I'm talking about a work of grace in my life, that means that God is further perfecting me, further sanctifying me every time by grace. So most uh, people so, listening to you so far are going to say, yeah, yes. What is this standing in contradistinction to uh, get out of jail free salvation. Once saved, always saved. Well, beyond that, the people who think that I I can pray this cute little prayer and then I can sort of act like a Christian sometimes, and because I prayed this little prayer, oh, uh, I know Jesus and I'm going to heaven. So the the notion of believers, uh, easy beliefism, uh, doesn't require transformation or holiness on my part. Um, it yeah. requires only that I said the sinner's prayer or got baptized or uh, went through some other uh, uh, signaling act, but it doesn't require any kind of follow-through. Here, here you're saying yeah. there, uh, you cannot be a Methodist unless you understand that follow-through is required, seeking holiness is required, and if you're not doing that, you're not a Methodist. And not only that, you're looking for the operation of God in that. It's not about anything that I've done, because so, it's a work of grace. So yes, I'm seeking after something, but only Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit can make that transformation in my heart and in my life. And you can use 10 million different words mm-hmm. to say what it is. Mm-hmm. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, Christian perfection, I don't care. Yeah. Uh, what matters is whether or not the Holy Spirit has invaded your whole being mm-hmm. in such a way that you look totally different than you did yesterday or three weeks ago or you know, when you were six yeah. years old. Yeah. No, I, th- um, I, I think I think you've made it clear now that, y- yeah, we. my thing was that the audience would hear, here are the things that are absolutely essential about being a Methodist, 
and to imagine, okay, yeah, we're not going to have pew sitters anymore. You, you cannot be a Methodist if you are not growing in holiness. That's, that's quite a standard to set. I think it, it, it comports perfectly with an early Methodist ethos. So right on. Um, okay, the last one. Methodists work for God's justice in all situations. Um, so in the baptismal vows, we say, uh, well, in the United, so the GMC says it a little bit differently. I remember the UMC, uh, I accept the freedom and power that God gives me to uh, resist evil, injustice, and evil oppression, injustice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. So for me, the issue has always been Jesus says flat out in the Sermon on the Mount, do not resist an evildoer. And that seems pretty plain and clear to me. Um, and the, re the way that, well, the reason this is worth nitpicking is in Great Britain, they were able to end the institution of slavery without bloodshed. But in America, we turned it into a holy war that was the most costly war that, that our country's ever seen because we had this notion that to be a Christian means that you stand against injustice, and our way of standing against it was to kill other people. Um, I worry that a particularly modern Western form of Christianity sees it as our bounden duty to resist injustice. But the early Christian ethos is that we need to learn to live righteously in the midst of an unjust world, and that looks very differently, um, not, just, not just in theory, but in our day-to-day corporate lives and individual lives. Um, if we see it as our job to make the world a more just place, then we're going to live very differently than those who assume the world is a just place, but I need to be an agent of peacemaking in the midst of it. Do, do you hear the distinction I make there? I, I realize this is kind of in the world of philosophy, but I'm wondering if, you know, John Wesley, in his public ministry, he engaged the poor. He ministered to the poor. He fed the hungry. He, get, he was out on cold nights giving blankets to people. But to my knowledge, I'm not aware of him advocating for policy change in Parliament in Great Britain. Um, I'm not aware of him engaging on the level of uh, legislatures and government policy and, and fighting injustice in that way. That seems to me a much more modern form of Methodism than where it started out. So I worry that, that that's what this, this makes room for, where all of a sudden we're issuing sto social statements again, and we have a book of... Um, what did the what's the United Methodist resolutions. yeah the book of resolutions book of Resolution. man oh I hate all that stuff so much man please do not make this endemic to the GMC all right I'm done with my tirade respond well notice the word I used work um it's not resist it's not it's fight not. it's work okay you know, yeah it's work okay. and and that takes many different pictures um I don't think uh, and and back to your statements about um, you know Great Britain and slavery. I mean William Wilberforce spent an entire lifetime mm -hmm. working very hard to eliminate slavery right. in, in Great Britain, mm -hmm. um, and it was holy work. And he would have told you that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, and I can't get away from. You know, we were just reading last night in my Bible study, Exodus chapter 22, that talks about widows and orphans. Mm -hmm. And if you look in the history of the Methodist movement, orphanages exist in many cases because of the Methodist movement. Exactly. Um, you, you know, people speaking up uh, uh, for unborn children, for example, in the pro-life movement is an example of justice. Uh, Am I, am I going out and bombing abortion clinics? No. Um, 
and, and that's not the kind of thing I'm advocating for mm-hmm. here either. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you can, I don't think you can be a Christian and not work for God's justice. I mean, that's just, it just, it, it's wrong to me to see someone suffering or someone in an unjust situation where I don't do something about it. The question is, what do I do about it? Yeah. And how do I make a change? Um, and and part and parcel to the history of Methodism, especially in the first century in the United States, was some sort of public witness, some sort of public activity to changing what was an unjust situation for someone in the world. Um, it's, it, it's part of bringing shalom God's peace to creation in a in a world that's broken. Um, I, I don't. I don't. I I agree with you on the fact that I don't want to spend inordinate amounts of time and energy and effort in the general conference passing meaningless statements about ridiculous things that we did, just like we did in the UMC. Mm-hmm. That's not what this is about. Again, it's about it's back to what is the mission of the church. And the mission of the church is really housed at the local congregational level in the GMC. Mm. That was purposefully done. So in your superintendency coming from your presiding elder, the question comes, what is your church doing to bring more shalom to the world, that, the context, and the space in which your church is a light for Christ in mm-hmm. the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the question that needs to be asked. Well, and this was something that I kind of brought up with Bishop Jones whenever I was able to talk to him. It seems to me that what what has been lost is, uh, potentially been lost, is that the very act of being Christians is transformative in the world. The, the notion that we have to be doing something beyond that, some kind of social intervention, some kind of mission, I worry impoverishes the notion of um, having transformed believers in the world. And it's not that you can actually separate those two. But, it, you know, in my church, you know, we, we have some collective works of mercy that we do, but we have a lot of individuals that do works of mercy individually. And I see huge precedent that for that in the early church and in early Methodism, where the expectation was not that you put a soup kitchen together— but that you feed your hungry neighbors. You know, you go to their houses, you build relationships with them. And so I worry that we've got some kind of corporate notion of putting some nonprofit together that is kind of far divorced from the individual holiness, individual social engagement that, that really was much more normative in the early church that didn't advocate against uh, Roman policies of exposing babies. They just went out into the woods and they found the babies and raised them. They didn't... They didn't and, but- Go ahead. The natural extension of that is going to be, hey, to the people in my class meeting, there's, you know, there's so-and-so down the street needs food. Yes. There's 10 people down the street that yes. need food. Why doesn't the class meeting get together and then go fix this problem so that that's not an issue anymore? Yeah. I think I think the problem we have, again, is a shift in the local submission, though. If you and and this was very purposeful in the, in the organization of the GMC, and I hope it continues to be. Where is the locus of mission? Is the locus of mission in the local church, mm-hmm. or is it at the denomination? Oh, I'm hearing want, you now. I'm hearing you now. I don't want to see it at the denomination. Okay. I want to see it happening exactly where you said it should. Be. Oh. Individuals. 
So that's kind of, there are a lot of people that I think, okay, so people who left the UMC behind but were very eager to continue supporting UMCOR or something, you would be kind of pushing back against that a bit, saying, no, nah, you really need to be thinking more about local mission than sending something to a body halfway across the world. I mean, I can do just uh, amazing, I mean, and there's already groups that do that. So why does my denomination need to set up some group that does that? I mean, I can donate to Samaritan's Purse for that matter. Mm. You, you know, why Why are you going to duplicate mission work that, well, you get a bigger footprint and all this? No, no. <laughs> so what? I mean, yeah. I can do I can do an incredible amount of good, too, if my class meeting gets together and says, I'm going to sponsor, you know, 10 kids at uh, such and such Methodist church in Liberia mm -hmm. to go to school. Okay. You know, so connecting people together on a different plane yeah. does a whole lot more work than me passing some resolution that goes into the book of resolutions. And so, what do you do? We said something. Yeah, well, let me, so we do in the Global Methodist Church, I've been doing a series going through the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline and talking through each portion. My brother and I sat down and talked through the social witness, two pages of social witness. We talked about it for two hours. Um, but it seemed to me an unnecessary exercise in saying, we global Methodists, this is how we feel about all these things, because I, I don't think they're going to hold the line and say, if you don't believe this and this and this, you're not, you don't belong with us, you know. Um, to If I'm reading your words correctly here, you do not mean Methodists are going to be on one side of any given equation. It's just that we are going to be engaged in the world locally, interpersonally, to advocate for God's peace and justice and be reconcilers. That's it. Hey, I like that. I, that sounds very different after talking to you than it did before talking to you. So thank you for spending that time with me. I think, man, this has all been really good for me using my brain. And uh, I'd like to think that I've helped you use yours a little bit, but if not, thank you for condescending to be with me and, and uh, my people. Um, what kind of, you know, we've, we've covered the list. I, I think it'd be fitting just to have you give a word to anyone who spent time with us. How, how would you like for them to reflect on this conversation that you and I have had? What, what would really please you that could come out of this? I think I want people to start thinking on a deeper level about what they believe. And I, and I think that that's going to make a difference in the way that this new denomination moves forward. I don't want pew sitters. I mean, I don't want somebody showing up in my church and and simply occupying a space there. I want to engage discipleship. That's my heart always. I said last night to, um, to another uh, pastor friend, I said, I'd rather have five incredibly committed disciples in my congregation who are engaged on every level than I would if you gave me a congregation of a thousand people um, that don't do anything but show up on church in church on Sunday. Um, that's not what this is about. I, this is about transform, transforming your mind. I started with Romans 12, and I'm going to finish with Romans 12. Mm -hmm. Be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and if you don't come out on the same as I do on the answers to all these questions, I don't care. But did you spend the time, like you said, to be able to think through them and then be able to come out on the other side saying, I believe these things, and here's why. Mm -hmm. 
and give me some solid, reasonable answer as to why you believe what you believe. And to be clear, neither of us are saying that people need to be an academic. That's not the standard that we're held to. The standard that we're held to is just being able to use our own words to talk about the hope that we have. Yep, and and to be able to use the mind that God gave you in the best way that you have the ability to, Mm -hmm. to do the best you can with the gifts that you have. and, and that's really what I hope comes out of all of this for the people who've, who've tuned in. Well, I hope you get a lot more feedback from this segment. I hope there are a lot of other people who come to you to, to think through stuff and encourage you. And, um, you know, I hope, my hope as people listen to this, I, I hope that they don't come away feeling like, man, these guys are talking about how many angels can dance on the tip of a needle, <laughs> but that they're talking about really meaningful things that have big implications. You know, there are a lot of people with a lot of optimism about what the GMC is is doing. But I, I think my role, you know, and not just mine, a lot of people is the sober assessment. Look, if we don't decide what we're for, what we're against is not enough to unite us and keep us united over time. So we need to figure out what we're for, why we believe what we believe. We need to have a, a time of, of negotiating these things because uh, you know, a lot of people just want to move forward. I'm not of the mind that we need to move forward. You know, uh, I, I think there's still a lot of people in the U.S. that are going to come in. There are a lot of people internationally that are going to come in. Uh, it's it's only after our convening conference that we can really have confidence about what what unites us, what we're going to stand against, what we're going to stand for. And in the meantime, we have to have these conversations in earth. So thank you so much, Matt, for helping me have this conversation. Uh, of course, this is probably not the last time we're going to talk the future is a big place, you know, until Christ comes again, there's a lot of conversations that need to be had. So we'll see what the uh, excuse is for talking next time. But in the meantime, I want to thank the audience that that takes this conversation seriously, whether you're global Methodist or not. Uh, there are a lot of people that I think are just interested in these topics of how to do church better. And uh, just want to thank those of you from other traditions in particular who are learning from the Methodists, even though we, we sure have been a mess lately. Um, if, if, you, if you enjoy these conversations, if you think it's a good thing that I'm hosting them, um, I, I welcome any feedback at all, whether it be in the comments or at my email address, plainspokenpod at gmail.com. If you want to support this kind of work, it, it takes man hours and it takes an employee, TJ, and he's my producer. He does a lot of things. If you want to make it easier for me to sign him on for more hours, generate more content, do better content, I would ask you to please consider going over to Locals.com and finding Plainspoken there and signing up for a, a monthly gift. I'm, I'm hoping – I'm not doing advertising on uh, YouTube or my podcast anymore. I, I cut off all car- corporate advertisement. If this is something that's going to maintain, it's going to be with the support of people who are who are listening and supported so thanks for all the support and love uh that i've been given and uh, i'll just look forward to uh, uh hopefully being a part of building something that that lasts for a long time with people like matt so um y'all make sure to to pray for matt when you turn this on on uh or turn this off because he's doing ministry pray for me pray for the global methodist church thank you friends i'll see you later